All right. Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you very much for being here. I'm so happy that we can talk about mainframes, and more specifically, how we modernize customers with AWS. So let me start with this. How many lines of COBOL code do you think our mainframe customers do have? And that's an average that I made from the customers that we're talking to. While you're thinking through it, let me introduce myself. I'm Phil DeValence. I'm a solution architect with uh, AWS, and I work with mainframe uh, customers, mainframe partners, helping them being successful with AWS. I do that globally with uh, partners and customers. So for those of you that don't know mainframes, mainframes are typically central um, computers in large data centers that typically handle large volumes of transactions, large volumes of data. They are oftentimes system of records, meaning they're backend systems to other servers. For example, if you get cash from an ATM, it's very likely that the final transaction is actually being done on a mainframe. So we still see many mainframes with our customers. Many multinational banks have mainframes. Insurance companies still have mainframes. We see mainframes in many government agencies. We see mainframes uh, in the automotive industries and many others. So why is that important to us? Well, mainframes are more complex than typical platforms that are being migrated to, to AWS. And Cloud is the new normal. Customers don't ask if they should move to the cloud, but how fast they can move. And with the mainframe, they are getting slower, and they don't want that. So they want to be able to include mainframes as part of their larger modernization journey. So this being said, getting back to the question, how many million lines of codes do we see per COBOL um, mainframe customer? Well, the answer is 21 million lines of codes. So that's a big number. How do we handle that when we modernize to AWS? Similarly, our customers typically have, an, as an average, 10 petabytes of data. They have 36,000 MIPS that they need to move to AWS. So how, how do they do that? So what we did is that we analyzed the many projects that our customer performed while modernizing to AWS successfully. We looked at similarities between all those projects, and we extracted all the best practices. We extracted all the common characteristics, we created patterns, so that all this can be given back to new mainframe to AWS initiatives. So this presentation is really about giving back to you all that experience, so that if you're starting a journey on migrating or modernizing your mainframe to, to AWS, then you can be successful as well. So let me talk about some of the drivers. Why do customers want to uh, modernize with AWS? The first biggest driver that we see all the time is cost, cost reduction. Mainframes are notoriously expensive. Customers want to reduce their MIPS consumption, that is too expensive. Customers want to go away from third-party licensing costs. They want to adopt a pay-as-you-go model, right? Only pay for what they use. And typically for mainframe modernization to AWS, we see customers doing savings from 60 to 90% for their annual cost of the infrastructure. So that's a big benefit that they get from modernizing to AWS. The second big driver is about agility. Customers want to go away from rigid architectures. They want to go away from the archaic interfaces, want to go away from the uh, monolith, and they really want to get more agile. They want to get, be more, uh, they want to create some CI-CD pipelines. They want to go into microservices. They want to benefit from the cloud speed. They also want to reduce their technical debt. 
They want to go away from the proprietary platform, both at the hardware level and the software level. They don't want to be locked into a vendor. The next big driver is around digital strategy support. They want to embrace the cloud benefits. They really want to be able to speed up innovation and adopt best-in-class software. Something that's also interesting with mainframe customers is because mainframes have been out there for decades, they have accumulated loads of data. And data is a new goal. So mainframe customers want to be able to exploit that data. They first want to unlock it, and then they want to unleash the benefit from it. And I'll talk about some of the patterns we have in that space. And then the last driver that we have that's strong with our mainframe customers is around the workforce pool size. So there is um, a mainframe retirement skill gap that you may be aware of. Many of the mainframers were baby boomers and now getting retired. So it's getting harder and harder for our customers to maintain those systems. Furthermore, they also want to be able to attract new talents with cutting edge skills. So getting into AWS allows customers to actually benefit from all those drivers. So of course, the mainframes are very different from AWS. At the architecture levels, it's totally different. Or the software stack is different. So there are some challenges when modernizing to AWS. But the good news is that we do have solutions for each of the challenges. Let me go through them quickly. Technical complexity, right? As I said, 21 million lines of codes. It's not easy to, to, to handle. And there are a lot of prerequisites, dependencies from, from that code. They have petabytes of data. So the way we do that is that we break down the complexity. We do that by workload, and then we use tools. So I'm going to talk about tools a lot during this presentation. Tools can be in, uh, in many aspects. It can be a solution to do a deep dive analysis into what the portfolio is. It can be a solution that actually emulates some mainframe functionality. It can be a solution that facilitates refactoring of the customer uh, code and infrastructure. It can be a, a, a tool that actually facilitates modernization of the data. So for all the technical complexity aspect, we actually use tools in many ways. The second challenge is really about business impact. So you may know that on the mainframe, you typically have core business data, core business processes that are being executed. So we need to minimize the risk, and we do that in several ways. The first best practice that we have in that space is around doing a complex POC. The sooner we can do a complex POC, the sooner we can limit the risk. The second aspect we do, or the second technique we do to minimize the risk is around doing performance benchmark, performance tests, validating that the solution is actually viable. And then we do a lot of regression testing. We do incremental changes. Another challenge is around non-functional requirements. Right on the mainframe, you've heard that. High security, high availability, high performance. Well, good news is with AWS, we do have services that can provide that quality of service as well. Next one is about legacy languages. So a mainframe could have assembler code. It could have PL1, natural, some cobalt code as well. Well, when modernizing to AWS, we do have the so solutions and the techniques so that that code can actually be uh, executed on AWS as well. Same thing with legacy data stores. On the mainframe, you could have index files. You could have gen generational files. You could have hierarchical databases. Well, we also have techniques and tools that can facilitate that modernization to AWS. Some customers tell us, well, we don't even know what's running on the mainframe. It's all undocumented. We don't know what the code is doing. 
Well, here again, we use tools to do deep dive analysis and transform that, that, that code and that workload to AWS. And finally, oftentimes, customers don't even have the expertise to actually deep dive into what the mainframe is doing. Well, the good news here is that we have many partners that can help us with us with the expertise to facilitate those modernization to AWS. So we've addressed the many benefits of modernizing to AWS. There are some challenges. We do have solutions for them. So what I really want to cover now is all the patterns that we have as a toolbox for modernizing to AWS. So we do have two families of, of patterns. We have patterns that are actually geared towards really shutting down the mainframe. And then we have patterns that are geared towards augmenting the mainframe, adding functionality to it. So the first family of pattern is about shutting down the mainframe. Short-term migration, how, as we call them. So the first pattern we have in that space is emulator rehosting. We're going to use an emulator that's going to facilitate the modernization and the, the movement of the application code and the data. The second one is about automated refactoring. We're going to use some techniques so that we can automatically refactor the uh, workload onto something that's almost like cloud-native onto AWS. The third pattern we have in that space is about replatforming for more modern workloads that could be running on the mainframe, such as Linux workloads, Java workloads, or even certain software packages, while we can replatform them onto AWS. And then we do have the augmentation patterns. So here we're not trying to shut down the mainframe, but we're trying to complement its functionality, add and augment its capabilities. The easiest pattern we have in that space is around data analytics. So we move the data over, and then we explode that data. We unlock its value. Another pattern we have is creating new channels, right? Customers want to be able to create new functionality, be able to enable those mainframe workloads with new capabilities, so we can create new, new channels onto AWS directly for that. The next pattern, and the last one I'll be discussing today, is around development and tests. So rather than augmenting the uh, capacity of a mainframe for dev and test, then some customers use AWS for the dev and test environments. So now I'm going to do a deeper dive into each of the patterns and explain to you how they work. So the first one is about uh, emulator rehosting. So the typical use case for, um, for that pattern is you have a customer that has invested large amounts of money and time and expertise into developing a large uh, mainframe application. Uh, and typically, that customer wants to keep uh, that, that application code. So they're going to try to actually move over to AWS that application code, limiting the changes necessary to the code. So for example, if you have a large COBOL development team, they want to keep that team. And they want to keep developing in COBOL. But rather than doing it on the mainframe, they want to do it on AWS. Another use case for emulator rehosting is if a customer has a stabilized application. They don't want to touch it, right? Make minimal changes to it and then push it to AWS just to benefit from the agility and the cost reduction. So how does it work? Well, for that specific pattern, we're going to use an emulator. So the emulator is actually going to be able to mimic some of the mainframe functionality. It's not going to create a mainframe onto AWS, but it's going to create the functionality that's necessary for the application code to execute and process uh, the transaction successfully on, onto AWS. So, so let me go through the, the dynamics of that pattern. So you can see on the left-hand side a typical mainframe. So you see the uh, mainframe code. You see transaction manager, batch subsystems, some of the typical data stores that you can find on, on the mainframe, and then some, some of the utilities that are necessary to execute the application. 
Well, what's going to happen when we do a modernization with uh, an emulator, when we migrate the code over? If the code is not supported, we'll have to convert it first. But if the code is supported by the emulator, what's going to happen is that we're going to use the emulator to actually recompile the code and be able to execute that code onto AWS. Of course, that code is going to have some dependencies. It could be a dependency on the transaction manager, right? It could be because there are some 3270 screens. It could be because there are some uh, temporary data queues that are necessary. I mean, everything that's being traditionally provided by the transaction manager. Well, the good news is that the emulator is going to provide that for you. So you're going to be able to run the application in the emulator environment. And for any functionality, any third-party dependency that's not provided by the emulator, then we would have to find so, some, actually some utilities that map the equivalent functionality. And what will happen in that case, there may be some code adaptation required, but that's going to be at the edge only, only for the interfaces. Most of the code is going to be stay the same. So from a, a risk perspective and from a management of the code perspective, that makes it very seamless, right? You just move the code over, you do a recompile, and then you're able to execute the code on, onto AWS. Now, by, by virtue of being on, on AWS, the good news is that you're going to benefit from the AWS services. So if the application is actually um, follows certain characteristics, you'll be able to do horizontal scaling, for example, use elastic load balancing and auto scaling groups. If the application uh, is, if you want to use a managed service for the database, for example, then you could use uh, Amazon uh, RDS for the database itself, and that facilitates the administration of the, of the database. You could also use CloudWatch for, for monitoring. So by virtue of being on AWS, then you really benefit from all the AWS services. Typically, those projects for medium-sized workloads take around a year. It could be shorter for us, like a simpler application. could be a bit longer if you have more, but it's typically around, around a year. Now, what's interesting in the title is that I'm talking about rehosting. If I had to stick with uh, AWS conventions, I would have to say that this type of project is more like a complex replatforming project. And the reason is because, as you can see, we're not keeping the same operating system. We're not keeping the same middleware, right? There is quite some transformation that needs to happen, recompilation that needs to happen. In, in traditional AWS terms, rehost is you just lift and shift the workload. You keep the same operating system, same stack, and everything is exactly the same. Here, there is more work. So that's why it's not a typical rehost as we used to uh, with AWS, where you do the migration in a few hours or a few days, but it's more like a larger project that's more involving. I do have a customer example for, for this pattern. Uh, we, we do have a, a customer, a multinational beverage company, that actually did exactly that. So they had 28 applications. Just to give you an idea of the scale of, of the uh, workload, they had 266 integration points with distributed systems. So that was really a backend server that's being used by plenty of applications. So they're actually migrating all this to, to AWS. So they benefit from the agility, and actually they benefit also from great cost savings. So they actually were able to save 72% in annual costs by just moving to AWS reducing the licensing costs, reducing the infrastructure costs, and, and benefiting from 72% saving. The next pattern I want to talk to you about is automated refactoring. So as I was telling to you about before, if you want to keep COBOL, for example, or the mainframe language and keep investing in that, then emulator rehost is good for that. Now, some customers don't want to keep that. They don't want to keep the um, mainframe language. They want to standardize the stack. Some customers want to be only Java. Some customers want to be only C-sharp and do the same across distributed and their traditional core business workloads. 
So for those customers, automating, automated refactoring can be a solution. It actually creates more like cloud-native applications. It has very much similarity with cloud-native apps. So what happens in, in this pattern is that we're not only converting code, but we're actually refactoring the complete stack. Here, you, you really have to understand that it's automated and refactoring. It's not manual work. It's all done by tools so that you can minimize the risk while doing the transformation. And it's, as I was saying, it's a complete stack. So it's not only the code, but it's all the dependencies. All the middleware, middleware, for example, at the transaction subsystem level, is going to be transformed. All the data dependencies are going to be mapped also to a new data model. So the automated refactoring, and it's very important to look at the entire stack, will be able to actually make sure that the entire functionality is migrated over and keeping coherent functionality between the source mainframe and the target AWS environment. So let me take you through how, how that works. So typically those tools, first they do some automated reverse engineering, right? Trying to find out how, what are all the dependencies, both at the program level and the data level. And what they do while doing that is that they create an application model. So they, they get deep dive analysis about the behavior of the programs and they can see all the dependencies. And the reason they're doing that is because they want to be able to have the granularity to decide how that transformation is going to happen. So as I was telling you, everything is automated in that process. What's not automated are the rules that define the transformation. So by default, the vendors in that space will provide the default target stack that's optimized with the tool set. But if you have specific requirements for a specific framework or a specific target AWS service, then they can customize the tool and customize the rules manually so that then everything can be regenerated and actually accomplish what you're trying to achieve on the target side. So once you, they have identified which program and how they want to transform it, they're actually going to do some automated forward engineering. And that's a critical step. That's really where the differentiators happen between the various tool vendors. A lot of vendors actually do automated reverse in engineering, right? So you have a lot of tools to do deeper dive and understand what's going on. But as far as, as forward engineering is concerned, it's much more difficult to find good capabilities in that space and making sure that you get actually a co coherent result, making sure you have uh, functional equivalence between the target and, and the source mainframe. And once you've done all the forward engineering, well, then you can deploy onto AWS. And basically, the default be, be deployment would be, for example, on EC2 using RDS as a database, possibly using Aurora as a database. But if you want to use SQS, if you want to use uh, ECS with containers, uh, if you want to optimize some of the workloads with specific services like ElasticCache, then that's also a possibility. It's a matter of retuning and refactoring some of the rules so that you can pro properly target the right services. I do have an example uh, for this pattern as well. So we have a Department of Defense customer that actually went through that process. They had a supply chain uh, system that was actually managing all their military equipment. And uh, they wanted to standardize their platforms. They wanted to make sure that uh, they don't have to deal with their uh, mainframe language anymore. They wanted everything to be Java. So they did several iterations of the uh, automated refactoring. And so they ended up having some uh, Java application. Uh, and they've, they've been able to deploy that on, onto AWS. So the good news is that in that process, not only they got more agile, not only they were able to create a, a dynamic CI-CD pipeline, but also they were able to make some strong cost savings. They don't have any uh, licensing costs that attach to the target stack, and they were able to save, they're estimating they're saving $25 million per year. 
So that's a, a great achievement for, for, for that customer. The next pattern I want to talk to you about is for more modern workloads. If you see some Linux, or if you see some Java workloads, or even some uh, software packages that are uh, on the mainframe, well, we can do replatforming. So this is much more similar to what we do uh, in a larger scope within, within AWS. So for Linux workloads, again, because the underlying hardware infrastructure is different, we won't be able to do a simple lift and shift. We'll have to go through a replatforming project. That means we'll have to reinstall software, we'll have to redeploy the same uh, Linux version, for instance, uh, reinstall the same middleware, and then once all the runtimes and the middleware are at the same level, same versions, then we're able to actually export, import the uh, application, we're able to do backup, restore of the data, and run similar environments onto, onto AWS. So on the left-hand side, you can see a mainframe with some more, more modern workloads. And then what we do is that we lift, teller, and shift. And then for e Linux, we would, for example, deploy that on uh, EC2 instances. For Java, we have more choices and options. Uh, if you want to deploy on EC2, that's a possibility. But if you actually want to deploy those uh, Java applications uh, and runtimes within containers, that's also another option. If you want to benefit from a, a managed environment, you can also use Elastic Beanstalk. For software packages, the way it would work is very similar. You would actually deploy, reinstall the software, backup, restore uh, the data and the applications. And typically, you would need to follow the uh, runbox from the vendor itself to define exactly which steps need to be followed. So the, the good thing is that for that type of projects, there are many uh, system integrators that, that can help and that have knowledge around the uh, vendor products and how, how to modernize with AWS. So the three patterns that I covered, actually, before I move to that, I actually have a custom example also. So um, multinational insurance company that had their claim on the mainframe. Uh, they uh, had Java workloads, messaging workloads. Um, they were actually doing some BPM, relational database. Once they migrated all of this onto AWS, and then they were able to see substantial cost benefits and also gain some, uh, some agility. So the great story with, the, with that uh, multinational insurance company. So as I was saying, we got through the, all the three patterns, main patterns that we see customers successfully uh, uh, performing for actually shutting down their mainframe. Now, if customers want to augment them, their mainframe, I'm going to go through the patterns that we have. So the first one we see is around data analytics. So this one is about moving the data over to AWS, and then once the data is on AWS, then I mean, the sky is the limit. There are many services, big data services, even machine learning that can be used on AWS to really unlock and unleash its full potential. So how, how does it work? Well, you see the uh, traditional uh, data source on the uh, mainframe side. It could be relational, hierarchical, some data files, various types of uh, uh, data files are available and, and used on the mainframe. So that, that, the, that data would be replicated to AWS. There are many ways to do so. Um, some customers do that manually. Uh, some customers use batch jobs to, to do that. But uh, the ones that actually want to get the best information, the most relevant information from their mainframe to AWS, try to use some real-time replication. Um, many ways to do that. One way of doing it is using some med messaging middleware. But we also have some partners with great tools that can do data replication using some uh, change data capture. 
right? Using some CDC techniques, they're able to get data from a relational database or even hierarchical or even some index data files and move the data over almost in real time to AWS. Once on the AWS, that, that, that data can land in a S3 data lake, for instance, or it can be processed right, right away uh, with Kinesis, for example, for uh, um, immediate analytics. And then it can move over. So the data can be put into a data warehouse. Uh, it can be moved to uh, Aurora, DynamoDB for uh, if the customer wants a, a NoSQL database data store. And then further processing can be done. You can be uh, using data pipeline to move the data even more. Uh, you can do processing with EMR, for instance, or even some reporting and some dashboards uh, using QuickSites. So one custom example with this one. Uh, we have a national railroad passenger corporation that has a booking system on the mainframe. And right now, or before they actually did the project, they had some challenges understanding what the customers were doing exactly in terms of reservations, what the trends were, etc. So what they decided to do is that they moved the data over to AWS using a messaging middleware. And then once on, on AWS, they actually put the data on S3, copied a piece of it into DynamoDB, and then as soon as the data was there, they were able to do some nice reporting from it, almost in real time, because the data was pushed right away from the mainframe to, to AWS. So the good thing with that is that they were not only able to do some real-time analytics, but also they were able to do some forecasting and try to see what trends uh, their customers were having while doing their reserv reservations. The next pattern we have uh, for augmentation is uh, augmentation with new channels. Rather than just doing analytics when the data is on AWS, as soon as the data is on AWS, well, of course, you can do new processing, develop new functionality. And uh, a, a common pattern that we see customers adopting is actually, rather than increasing MIPS on the mainframe, they decide to create new functionality onto AWS and provide the data and expose the data to new, new consumers. For example, if you have a, a mobile application, then you could actually integrate through the API gateway, provide a service that's going to read the data and make the mainframe data available to the mobile applications. Or if you want to enable a new channel through voice, well, you could use Alexa and develop an Alexa skill and make that data available. It's still mainframe data that's going to be exposed through the uh, uh, Alexa device to, to your consumers. So there are various ways of doing so, right? Some customers choose to use Lambda, some of them choose to use containers. So there are various ways to actually compute that data and expose it to the consumers. One example uh, I do have is uh, a large US commercial bank that wanted to be able to uh, integrate their mainframe data and expose that to the mobile app for their, cons uh, for their own customers. So what they did is that they, were, they went all serverless. They didn't want to have to manage and administrate uh, any database or any compute nodes, so they went all serverless. They used Lambda, they used uh, DynamoDB, and, and they were able to actually um, put or expose the mainframe data to their mobile, uh, mobile users in real time. So the good thing with that is that, of course, it was scaling seamlessly, right? Because it's all serverless. They didn't have to manage uh, any scalability um, uh, constraint. And then, of course, because it's all serverless as well, then they were able to achieve uh, big cost savings. And then the last uh, pattern I want to talk about regarding augmentation is around development and tests. So as usual, I mean, mainframe are expensive. Customers don't want to increase MIPS. 
but sometimes they still have new needs, right? And sometimes they have developers, they have new projects that they want to uh, perform and, uh, and new applications they want to develop. But rather than developing new uh, environments uh, on the mainframes, they actually decide to put those environments uh, onto AWS. So here you see the mainframe on the right-hand side. And the reason is because the production environment is still on the mainframe. But all the dev and tests are going to be put onto AWS. So it's going to start with the dev environment. Customers could use EC2, for example. They could use uh, AWS workspaces. They would put their IDE uh, onto AWS and start coding there. For example, put some, uh, an IDE that can do COBOL development and put it on, onto AWS. Then they would push the code, commit it, for example, through AWS uh, code commit, and then promote it through the various environments. So they could have like a test environment, integration test environment, performance test e even onto AWS to do like advanced testing. And they would use a mainframe emulator here. So it actually kind of go back to the first pattern we talked about, right? Emulator rehose. We can use the same emulator rehose uh, solution here. We uh, e even have like a, uh, a famous uh, mainframe uh, manufacturer that even has their own uh, mainframe uh, emulator that's available just for dev and test only. So once the code has been promoted through the various uh, dev and test environments, then that code is being pushed back to the mainframe for the final validation and then for executing the code into production. Uh, one example, before I move over, one example of a customer doing this, uh, we have a, a multinational financial uh, services company based in Southeast Asia that's, uh, that is actually doing that. They have hundreds of developers, right? And they don't want to maintain uh, all the development environments on the mainframe, and they always have new projects that they want to be able to, to uh, develop quickly. So rather than putting that on the mainframe, they decided to actually create one EC2 instance per, per uh, developer. In every single EC2 instance, they have both the IDE and an emulator available to them so that they can do uh, unit testing right there. Then they have other types of EC2 instances for integration testing. And so the code gets promoted through the various environments onto AWS, and then the code is being pushed back to the, uh, to the mainframe where there is final performance test that's being performed, final recompilation, and then the code is being put into production for the mainframe uh, in the mainframe directly. So I went through uh, the two families of patterns that we have, right? Again, patterns for shutting down the mainframe and then patterns for augmenting the mainframe. Now what I want to talk about is the approach we recommend uh, customers to take when modernizing with, uh, with AWS. So as you can see, a critical success factor for doing that modernization is around the tool, right? Depending on the tool that you choose, you'll be able to s deliver certain objectives. You'll be able either to emulate similar functionality compared to the mainframe, or you'll be able to do refactoring, etc. So it's really the tool itself that's going to be a critical success factor in the modernization journey. So as quickly as possible, you want to be able to validate that the tool can actually satisfy the requirements for the mainframe that we're trying to modernize. So the approach we're taking is always start from what the customer requirements are. That's typical Amazon way of operating. We start from the business requirements, IT strategy requirements, and then the specific mainframe requirements. Which technologies do they have deployed on their mainframe? There is no one-size-fits-all. So we have to understand exactly what can be done with that specific mainframe. Some emulators are good with specific types of mainframes, but some of them are not good with other types of mainframe. So we know, need to know exactly what, uh, what the mainframe technology is. For that, we use a, a mainframe questionnaire that we have that allows us to actually deep dive into what the requirements are exactly about. And then very soon, we need to also understand the strategy and identify which patterns 
from the patterns we've reviewed, which pattern is actually applicable to that specific mainframe, which patterns will allow the customer to satisfy their business objectives. Once a customer actually decides a preferred pattern, then we need to identify which tool can support that pattern. For every pattern, there are several tools that, that can be used. They all have their pros and cons. They have more or less experience, uh, more or less capabilities, more different value proposition. So we want to make sure that this is aligned with what the customer is trying to, is trying to achieve. And then once a customer has identified which tool uh, is preferred, then the strong recommendation is actually to do a complex proof of concept. So a complex proof of concept is not an easy proof of concept that's just going to show some of the functionality. What we want to do here is really take what's most complex on the mainframe and prove that the tool that's chosen can actually achieve the business objectives and the technical objectives. So we're going to take what's most complex. Could be batch, could be uh, stringent uh, non-functional requirements, uh, it could be lots of dependencies, it could be a specific software version that's not common at all. I mean, whatever seems challenging in that transformation, we want to validate it through the complex POC. And the reason we do that is because we don't want to see failure in the middle of a large project. We want to be able to identify as soon as possible that we'll be able to be successful with that specific tool. So the, the complex POC will not only prove the capability from a technical perspective, but it will also show the dynamics of the tool. How fast does it go? What is the quality of the deliverables? How satisfied is the customer going to be with the outcome of using that tool? So the complex POC will provide a lot of insight. It will also so it will be good for the customer to be reassured that the tool can satisfy the objectives. It will be good for the tool vendor as well, just to put them in, in confidence moving forward. And it's, it's good for AWS as well, so that we know that the partnership can work well and be successful. Once the tool has been proven through a complex POC, then actually you can start doing the architecture design. It's very hard to do the architecture design before you know what tool you're going to use. The reason is because depending on the tool, well, so you're going to have different workload types, right? You, you don't know exactly what it's going to look like. Once you, have a, once you know exactly which tool is going to be used, then you know what are the constraints, you know exactly what are the dynamics, you know what are the options, so you will be able to really start deep diving into the architecture design. Once you know what the architecture is going to be like, then, of course, you can start defining the activities to build up that, uh, that architecture. You can start actually creating the activities for the larger project and move on to delivery. So again, very important to understand what the customer is trying to achieve, what are the business objectives, and validate that the tool is capable of satisfying the business objectives through the complex POC. So we talked a lot about tools. Uh, the first requirement for the tool, of course, is to support the techn technology that's in the mainframe, right? Uh, if the tool cannot support like an assembler, or if the tool cannot support a specific type of mainframe, then there is not even any reason to start considering the tool. The second strong requirement is for the tool to be actually be uh, uh, able to guarantee functional equivalence between the source and the target. And that's going to be done through the complex POC. So the sooner you can do the complex POC, the sooner you'll be confident that you can actually invest some more time in evaluating the tool and then delivering the project with, with a specific tool. And then, of course, you want the tool to be aligned with the uh, IT strategy. If you want to keep mainframe, um, if you want to keep developing with a mainframe language, you want to align with that with a specific tool. Uh, if you want to go away from that and change and refactor, you want to be aligned with that. If you want to keep the mainframe but only augment, you want to be aligned with that. And the tool that you select needs to be aligned with that strategy. 
So some of the evaluation criteria that can be used uh, during tools evaluation, and it's going to be, it will have to be aligned with uh, what the specific requirements are on the specific project uh, objectives are. But typically, migration project speed is pretty important. I mean, if the project is just uh, going to be too long, like three to five years, of course, it's going to put the project at risk. So the, f the more the tool can actually expedite the process, the, be the better that's going to be. Uh, another uh, criteria you can use to actually select a tool is the migration cost per line of code. See how cost efficient the tool is. Uh, complex POC results. So once you do the complex POC, you'll be able to see in detail exactly what the tool capabilities are. Does it provide maintainable code? Uh, how easy is it to use uh, the tool itself? How scalable it is? What are the constraints, etc.? You want to look at also the target stack agility. Uh, some tools have constraints, some of them don't have similar constraints, so you want to be able to see how well it plays with AWS, specifically around some of the functionality that AWS customers are used to, in terms of scalability, in terms of security, in terms of in integration with the re remaining AWS services. So you want to look at all of this and take that into account uh, when selecting the tool. Target code maintainability can be another criteria. Availability, performance, scalability. So that goes back to the uh, mainframe uh, non-functional requirement, making sure that uh, it actually matches with what expectations are. Here, what's interesting is that uh, some tools have the capability to actually select various AWS services depending on their quality of service. Meaning that uh, if latency is very important, then some AWS service can be well suited. If it's more scalability that's important, or if it's more security, then many, several, or I would say different AWS services can be, can be chosen. And then uh, finally, compare license costs. That can vary dram dramatically also from one tool to another. So I want to go over some uh, best practices as well that we've identified looking at su successful projects. So the number one uh, best practice we have, again, is complex proof of concept, right? Uh, I'm not going to repeat it uh, enough. Uh, you, as soon as possible, you want to validate that uh, the tool you're working with, the solution that you're looking at, is actually a viable solution. So the sooner you can do that complex POC, the sooner you'll be, able, you'll be confident and to invest more time and money in that solution. The second uh, best practice is really about maximum automation. So I mentioned the um, 21 million lines of code, petabytes of data, so the more automation you have, the better you'll be positioned to deliver the project quickly and pro provide short-term results. Uh, maximum automation is not only about uh, managing the applications, the data, but it's also in terms of how the project is being delivered, right? Around uh, CI/CD pipelines. A lot of the projects, modernization projects, do have to do a lot of regression testing. So you want to make sure that all the regression testing is automated as much as possible so that the project can be delivered quickly. Uh, modernized legacy data store. So when on AWS, um, it's possible that some of the uh, legacy data store keep the same format. And in, in general, it's not a good idea to keep the uh, legacy data format onto AWS. And the reason is because if you want to be able to explode that data through other services, then it's going to be much harder to actually access the data, reuse the format, and reformat the data, and then be able to leverage it. So a recommendation we have here is rather than keeping the legacy data format, try to modernize it uh, through the uh, project when migrating to AWS. It's typically a minor investment, but you provide a lot of value after the fact. Because if you modernize the data format, for example, in a relational da data store, then you're able 
to access not only that data for the uh, mainframe workload, but also for any uh, new need that you may have around. So it provides a lot of value. Workload-based modernization. So again, there is no one-size-fits-all uh, when you modernize to, to, to AWS, and you've seen all the patterns. It could be that within a large mainframe, there are several workloads. It could be that one workload is going to follow a pattern, and another workload is, follow, is going to follow a different pattern. And then define tool evaluation factors. So I mentioned to you some of the factors you could reuse, but of course those have to be aligned with the uh, IT strategy objectives and the business objectives. So you're going to have to define your own factors. From a business perspective, some best practices we have, vendor neutral pattern selection. So you want to make sure that you actually choose a pattern before you choose a tool. And the reason is because pattern is one of the most important aspects to really align with your IT strategy. So um, when doing so, you'll see that based on the specific um, mainframe technology, not all patterns are going to be available to you. So if you use very common mainstream technology on the mainframe, then it's very likely that all patterns are going to be available to you. But if you have specific uh, technical constraints, uh, if you have an unusual mainframe, etc., it's, it's possible that there could be no solution, or only one or two patterns are going to be applicable. So make sure that you first select the pattern, and then once you have selected a pattern, then move on to selecting a tool, the architecture, and then defining the activities for the larger project. Um, some customers want to do a business-level modernization while doing the uh, modernization to AWS. What we see is that many of the tools that we use for modernizing to AWS are very good at doing quick equivalent transformation to, to AWS, but if you need to do business-level transformation, that requires some manual intervention. And as soon as you do manual interventions, with the amount of code, with the amount of data that we have, then it puts the projects at risk. So the strong recommendation there is to try to serialize. First, do the technical transformation, make it run on AWS, and then only after you've done that transformation, then start doing business improvements. Um, when you uh, do um, modernization to AWS, you not only want to evaluate the uh, migration costs or the modernization costs, but also the target st stack costs. So that includes not, not only the uh, AWS infrastructure costs, but also any licensing costs that you have on top of it. And then let me touch on uh, system integrators also. Um, system integrators are great partners of ours. Uh, they can help in many ways, uh, from the beginning to the end of a mainframe modernization, modernization journey. Uh, you want to make sure that the system integrators that you're working with, especially before a tool is chosen, are actually knowledgeable about the various patterns that are available for modernization to AWS. You want to make sure that every single pattern, they have experience with it, they know which tools can be used, and actually help uh, providing advices to the customer uh, as best as they can. Once a tool is selected, then the system integrator has to have expertise in the specific tool. So they need to have experience with using that specific tool and modernizing to, to AWS. Oftentimes, we see actually um, uh, groupings of uh, system integrators, of partners, to actually do a mainframe modernization. There could be expertise or tools that are required from various vendors, and so that's where we see a lot of uh, partnership going on. Uh, I'd like to cover some of the resources that can be useful. Uh, first, we have a, a blog post uh, that talks about the uh, patterns and best practices, uh, get, getting into more, uh, some more details about the patterns that I did describe. So feel free to, to go and, uh, and read that blog post. Uh, I want to also mention um, a section that we have around mainframe within the uh, APN blog. 
the AWS Partner Network blog. Uh, we're trying to keep adding more and more blogs uh, from our partners in there. So you, you've seen that I was talking a lot about tools. Well, if you want to know which tools do work well with AWS, feel free to look at the, at the blog and you'll see uh, not only tools that have performed uh, projects with AWS, but also some uh, customer success stories there. So I want to spend some, some time also on describing the uh, quality of service for mainframe workloads on the AWS side. So as I was saying, uh, for mainframes, it's very important to have security, availability, scalability, system management. I'm not going to go through the entire list of AWS services that can support those requirements. But keep in mind that we have now more than 130 services available onto AWS, and we support all that quality of service. We have plenty of enterprise customers in all industries that have stringent requirements and that allow us to actually support uh, stringent requirements for enterprise workloads. So we do have the ability to run mainframe workloads on, on, on AWS. And we also have a great partner community. So uh, it's good to know that we have strong experience, strong tools that can actually execute. And the tools that we work with, uh, with our partners, are actually getting more and more optimized to benefit from the many AWS services and uh, make sure that the solutions are running well on, on the AWS. So if you add to that the cost savings, the agility that can, the customer can get, I mean, all these are very good reasons for modernizing to, to AWS. So finally, I'd like to uh, give you my call to action. Uh, if you see a, a, a mainframe uh, out there, the first thing is to try to identify a mainframe workload, right? Uh, there could be lots of workloads on one mainframe, so we want to see which uh, mainframe workload uh, is a good candidate. Second, you want to actually collect business and the technical needs for that workload. Is it a stabilized application? Uh, does it need to stay mostly the same? Does it need to be refactored, et cetera? See exactly, specifically, what are the technical constraints. And we, we can help with all those activities. Then you want to understand the available patterns uh, for that specific workload. Then you want to actually select uh, a tool and start investigating partners that can help with modernizing to, to AWS that specific workload. And then finally, do a complex pr proof of concept. So with this presentation, you can see that uh, we have the uh, patterns, we have the best practices, we have the successful customer stories, we have uh, awesome value proposition with, with AWS. So let's modernize mainframe together.